0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Payments delayed, USA checks could take months, and business loans aren't ready. Oil for one and one for all. Prices rise on hopes of a supply cut, but does OPEC agree? And flattening the curve, Americans are told more effort is needed. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome, once again, to all our first movers around the globe. Thank you for being with us once again. I just wish I had better news to give you, but I'll give it to you nonetheless. We now know the number of global coronavirus cases has topped one million people. More than 50,000 have also lost their lives recoveries, though, are critical to talk about at this moment too. More than 200,000 people have beaten this and the global fight continues. The fight continues too for millions of global workers who have lost their jobs over the past few weeks. The latest US payroll report far, far worse than expected. 701,000 non-farm jobs were lost last month. This, of course, is outdated because it doesn't include the second half of March when the shutdown Accelerated, it's still much worse, as I mentioned, though, than expected. The unemployment rate rose to some 4.4%. That was the steepest rise since 1975. But given what we've seen so far from jobless claims, we could already be at a 9 to 10% unemployment rate even now. So that gives you a sense of where we are. It's worse, though. It could take some 20 weeks for aid checks to get out there to Americans The system for getting direct deposit information to try and make that quicker for some people is delayed and lenders are concerned now about offering loans that might go bad and they have to take on that risk. Getting $2 trillion Into the economy is a logistical nightmare at any time. The problem is people still have bills to pay, and I'll still argue that outgoings like rent must be frozen in the same way that the economy is frozen, even if it's just for a short period of time. Either way, it's a logistical nightmare, but other nations have done this. On Wall Street, futures are pointing to a modestly lower open Europe. Also, as you can see, under pressure, data on European business activity plunged to the lowest levels on record. We know this economies have been brought to a halt. Asian stocks were little changed. Meanwhile, oil prices, though, soaring again after a historic 20%-plus rally on Thursday amid hopes of a deal from the oil-producing nations. More context coming right up on that. But first, I do want to get you more context in our drivers and to a key part of the US stimulus measures. Small business loans and lenders warning they may not be ready today, despite a promise by the Treasury Secretary. J.P. Morgan Chase was the first to warn... It's unable to accept applications today. Banks are scrambling for more guidance and the right paperwork. Fraud is said to be one of the major concerns. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, these two things are tied. The amount of jobs that we're losing, the hopes, that the money, these lending facility that's been created here would stem some of the job losses if it could get to the small and medium-sized enterprises. But now it seems... The lenders are simply saying we're worried about taking on the risk and perhaps being fined later.
1: Yeah, JPMorgan Chase, Julia, the largest bank in the country, they are still waiting, like many other banks, for guidance. And that, I think, could be something that unfortunately delays this program from the Small Business Administration to really kick off in earnest. So I'm going to read you. This is what Chase has on their Chase for Business website guidance for customers right now, they say financial institutions like ours are still awaiting guidance from the SBA and the US Treasury. As a result, Chase will most likely not be able to start accepting applications on Friday, April 3rd, as we had hoped. Make no mistake, we will help you, our customer, with getting access to these emergency funds. So uh, we really have paperwork and you know problems with the logistics of getting this program off the ground, being an issue. Good news, if you want to call it that, is I spoke with several other banks yesterday, large banks like Truist, the uh, combination of bb and and SunTrust, TD Bank, Wells Fargo, PNC, U.S. Bancorp. They all said that they have many other programs that they're putting into place to step up other types of small business loans, to not worry about the usual types of penalties that they would be charging small businesses for being late, on payments and you know deferring certain things down the road because obviously everyone is struggling right now and these banks understand that. And the good news is I also wrote my story, big banks aren't the problem this time. 2008, we had to bail out the banks. Now the banks have to help bail out everyone else because they're in good financial shape.
0: A few issues with this for me though, Paul, it's clients we're willing to give existing clients and that's certainly what I've heard from one of the other biggest banks. If you're a client of the bank, you can get access to money. But the whole point of the CARES Act lending facility was a lot of the lending turns into a grant if they retain employees. I don't know, and I don't know whether you have any sense from, from those that you've spoken to, whether they're willing to offer their version of loans and whether they're willing to allow any forgiveness on this loan.
1: Yeah, I think that it remains to be seen what types of forgiveness terms will be attached to these loans. And you're right. I think that there are so many small businesses that may not have existing relationships with some of the larger banks. They now need them. So yes, the good news is if you're a mom and pop, you know, restaurant chain or, uh, you know, a grocer or what have you, any sort of small business that's already doing Banking relationships with Chase, City, B of A, what have you, you're probably, as long as you've been in good standing, you're going to get the help that you need. But what about all those companies that don't have banking relationships already? Will they be able to get them through this SBA uh, paycheck protection program? That, I think, is the big hope because everyone is going to need some sort of financial assistance. There aren't small businesses that are going to be able to weather this, uh, you know awful time that we're in right now without significant economic and financial
2: pain.
0: Yes, the help yeah. can't come soon enough. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Now, as we've mentioned, oil also in focus. Prices are adding to the record gains from Thursday, though they're still down around half Uh, a year to date, around half a percent, uh, sorry, 50% year-to-date. Sources tell CNN OPEC will discuss supply cuts with Russia and other oil producers on Monday, and they say this time the alliance may be broader. John Devteris joins us now. John, get my teeth into gear uh, to talk about this and prepare myself. There is a lot going on here. The president has suggested that OPEC Plus is prepared to cut output to a tune of 10 times the amount that they were unwilling to cut by before the price collapse. Now, it's hurting everybody, but what's your sense of how willing OPEC Plus is here to take steps without other big oil players stepping up to and making their own cuts?
3: Well, it is a big ask by the U.S. president, 10 million barrels a day. He was going to the high side to 15 million barrels a day. And you rightfully said that uh, this broke Saudi Arabia and Russia at the last meeting on March 6th, over 1.5 million barrels a day. And we have to keep in mind, sources are telling me that the relations between Riyadh uh, and right now Moscow remain quite frosty. There's another implication here to your question to me, and that is that the president seems to think that Saudi Arabia, Russia and the other uh, 20 or so producers of OPEC Plus will handle this on their own. Two senior sources have told me that are part of the alliance. This is a non-starter. You have to bring the other players to the table. The United States, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, UK, Norway. If you want to cut 10 to 15 percent of global supplies right now, uh, you cannot lean on this organization to do it alone. So what is taking place right now, Julia? Vladimir Putin's meeting with his major oil producers in Moscow. That should be finishing right about now. Six hours from now, the president will have uh, seven CEOs at the White House discussing their strategy the support he's trying to give them and it's a pretty easy game in Saudi Arabia right they just have one major producer in Saudi Aramco but it's extraordinary to think a month ago we saw the price war break out now we're talking about cutting 10 million barrels a day it seems extraordinary but the president trying to serve as a mediator a dealmaker to me proves to be a real challenge when he's trying to bring uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia back together
0: you know it's fascinating because there's wheels within wheels here the United States very important right now their relationship with China and the agricultural demand we know and believe that China's taking the time now to add to its strategic stockpiles of oil when prices are so low if I had to look around the world I'd say China has the most influence on Russia perhaps to take action here what do you make of of what's going on because the the geopolitics at this moment matters perhaps more than ever.
3: That's what happens when you see a 20% drop in demand, right? It makes for uh, strange bedfellows, if you will. Let's cover off China and why they're uh, buying oil from the United States, for example. It is cheap, and I'm sure they're getting a fantastic deal. It helps them build their uh, strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, It actually meets the obligations under the phase one of the trade agreement with the United States. But there's another thing I was thinking about, Julia, and that is the relationship between China and Russia. Russia signed a 30-year deal back in 2014 when they had these massive sanctions from the United States, it was worth a uh, $300 billion. Uh, right now, Donald Trump's proving that he can put a wedge between China and Russia and helps China curry favor with the Trump administration. And he says to the shale producers of the United States, look what I'm doing for you. Also, I find it extraordinary. If you asked me a week ago whether the U.S., uh, energy secretary would be meeting with his counterpart from russia and say no way how about the texas regulator on the phone with the opec secretary general regularly as well then we have another rift playing out here some of the shale producers want to have a dialogue with opec be part of the solution take some of the oil on the market off the market after that and then you have the other shale producers who are pushing capitol hill is saying put tariffs on the saudi exports and the russian exports into the united states saudi arabia has the largest refinery in the united states so that's a very sensitive issue and finally on the geopolitics i thought this might happen saudi arabia the crown prince mohammed bin salman julia he could not go against the united states for very long one month into the game Donald Trump leaned on him and said, look, I backed you in Iran. I didn't make a big fuss about Jabal Khashoggi. Do you really want to keep the price war going when we have U.S.-Saudi relations? And the answer to that is a resounding no.
0: The power structure fundamentally changed when there's no demand in the world. Jim absolutely great analysis. Thank you so much for that. All right, now to the global coronavirus health crisis. And more than one million people have now been affected, according to John Hopkins University. Here in the United States, the number of cases has topped 245,000 people, and more than 6,000 people have lost their lives. White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator Dr Deborah Birx urges every state to follow social distancing guidelines. I can tell by the curve, and as it is today, that not every American is following it. And so this is really a call to action. We see Spain, we see Italy, we see France, we see Germany. When we see others beginning to bend their curves, we can bend ours. CNN Senior Medical Correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, always great to have you with us. I watched this and I got goosebumps on my arm. The difference is we don't have a top-down order for everyone to stay at home in this country. Is that what is required, ultimately?
4: You know, Ultimately, I think that's very helpful. In smaller countries, Dr. Bergs named some of them, it's been much easier to say, everyone, please do this. And you really do need everyone to do it. If you have small communities that aren't paying attention and aren't listening to these social distancing guidelines, then it kind of pretty much ruins it for everybody else. The United States is so much larger and is so much more diverse than really any other country um, that's Dealing with this that that it's just more difficult to do it also doesn't help julia that we don't have a single-payer system in the united states now we can debate all day and all night whether a single-payer system is the way that the united states should go but i think it's pretty clear that if you have a single-payer system you have one health system moving in one direction you know where to allocate resources and the united states is really kind of a free-for-all
0: yeah critical part of the uh, jigsaw puzzle here and the cases keep rising Elizabeth Cohen great to have you with us thank you so much Now, the World Bank has approved emergency funds worth 1.9 billion dollars for the world's poorest countries including three nations in Africa this as the World Economic Forum warns that South Africa could become the pandemic's ground zero on the continent Eleni Jokos joins us now from Johannesburg just terrible timing the lack of infrastructure, the lack of supplies, the lack of healthcare facilities, even relative to the struggle that we're seeing in the West. Eleni, let's talk about South Africa first. What's the situation?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, and as you say, when you see developed economies like the US, uh, the likes of China and some European countries being able to throw money at this to stimulate their way out of the problem or at least deal with some of the financial implications, when you look at it from an African perspective, it just gives you um, a, a completely different perspective. In South Africa specifically, a country that was already in recession does not have enough fiscal room to be able to stimulate its way out of this uh, economic growth is, is going to falter. You had Moody's downgrading South Africa into junk status just last week. You've got the local currency, the RAND, hitting record lows across all major currency crosses, one of the worst em- uh, uh, performing emerging market currencies in the world. Let's talk about the healthcare sector that already was stretched under the current uh, environment. And now you add in COVID-19 patients and, it and you know, many people say it, it is a disaster, humanitarian disaster waiting to happen. And same goes for the rest. Of the continent, You know, you spoke about $1.9 billion being allocated by the World Bank. $1 billion is going to be going to India, $900 million to um, some African countries. But African finance ministers, Julia, gave us a reality check earlier this week. And they're talking about $100 billion that will be needed to deal with COVID-19. And apart from that, they were also asking for debt relief because they need to create fiscal room to help uh, African economies that are going to be falling apart because of this.
0: Yeah, it's a drop in the ocean and more lives will be lost. And Eleni Jokos, we'll keep checking in with you yeah. on this story because it's critical. Thank you so much for that update there. right, right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, Ford's new model, the ventilator. We'll hear from the company as it undergoes a major retooling in order to save lives. Plus, could an antibody test be part of our salvation? City seems to think so in the push to get the world back to work. That's next. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where futures are pointing to a mostly flat open on Wall Street. Before the bell, we had those non-farm payroll reports for the United States for March. A backward-looking report. This is key. It doesn't include data from late March, where we saw the shutdowns really take hold. It was a dismal read, nonetheless. More than 700,000 non-farm jobs were lost last month. That's the first month of job losses in a decade. The economic fallout of these measures continues. In the meantime, carmakers and other manufacturers are ramping up production of things like masks, gowns and ventilators amid a critical shortage of medical equipment. General Motors aims to produce up to 10,000 ventilators a month. Toyota is going to start 3D printing face shields. Tesla imported more than 1,000 ventilators from China. Ford, meanwhile, partnering with GE Healthcare to deliver 50,000 ventilators in the next 100 days. Joining me, one of the people leading Ford's efforts to achieve that, Jim Balbic is the Vice President of Enterprise Product Line Management at the company. Jim, I know you are incredibly busy, you and your team, but thank you for making the time to chat to us. Talk to me about how the company went from recognising there was a health crisis going on to saying, "Okay, we can retool and we can help fight this crisis.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me, Julia. You know, there's a famous expression at Ford, uh, it's go like hell. And we saw this incredibly urgent need uh, to support medical uh, first responders, as well as patients, uh, in a very short order to meet the surge demand. And that's exactly what we're focused on, is how fast can we get the right level of equipment out to these uh, people that need it the most as fast as possible.
0: Can you explain exactly what you're making here? And is there any way to help facilitate doing what you're doing quicker? We've heard from medical device companies that there are components within this that are hard to source and that are complex. Is there any way this can be organized better to help you produce more faster?
6: Yeah, so I think this is really what was inspiring us is This really urgent need in April, May, and June uh, meant that we had to look at various different design alternatives with our partners at GE Healthcare and identify those that we could actually focus on to move very, very quickly. One of the challenges uh, in the medical industry is they're effectively set up for a relatively low volume of production, thousands. And the need here is much higher orders of magnitude. And so... That was actually the thinking between uh, taking the best of what we know as an automotive manufacturer, we know how to scale at, uh, at volume, and mashing that up with uh, the expertise of GEL Healthcare. And so we focused on a design that was really uh, meant for the purpose, or at least would suit the purpose of these COVID patients, with a low level of complexity. And one of the challenges here is the more complex the machine, the harder it is to scale, the more components. And so that's really why Health uh, Healthcare, with their clinical expertise, uh, helped us uh, lock in on this Aeron design that we could actually move very, very quickly on and, and leverage what we know best. And that's building uh, parts at scale and at, at volume. And so that's what the team's actively doing right now.
0: The White House has lauded the efforts that you've made specifically pete navarro who is the defense production act coordinator can i ask what role if any the government has played in what you're achieving here and do you have buyers do you have people that are going to buy these ventilators or are you simply going to produce and that will come later
6: well certainly uh, dr navarro has been helpful in giving us a sense of the the demand and uh, giving us information so that we can Focus on where uh, the biggest and greatest need is for ventilators. Um, you know, overall, I think everybody's just trying to address the issue, and it is a very large issue. And one of the biggest challenges is time is the enemy because it's urgent, uh, at, meaning April, May, June, and July are these critical uh, periods. And you can't think traditionally around a typical product production or annual volume. We need the volume now. And so Uh, Effectively, that's uh, been the driving force behind our thinking, uh, and information is critical in getting it to whether it's the administration or some of these large uh, uh, hospital first responder consortiums to make sure we can get that equipment distributed uh, to the right places and get it to the men and women on the front line.
0: Jim, it's a tough question, but I'm going to ask it. We've heard about an effective Hunger Games going on between states buying the ventilators that they need. Are you going to decide? Who you give what when, and will that come down to the highest bidder, or will you make different decisions?
6: No, uh, well, number one, that's why we teamed up with GE Healthcare. Uh, they are very well experienced in the distribution of this critical ventilator equipment, and uh, we're going to leverage all of their expertise to get it where it needs to go. And certainly, uh, we're coordinating with the administration and other really critical sources through uh, GE Healthcare's expertise. Our focus and our mission is to, to make sure we can make high quality product at scale to, to meet the surge demand and work in partnership with, with GE. And that's exactly why uh, we reached out and uh, and we, we kind of combined the best of both of our companies to kind of meet this immediate demand.
0: Great to hear. Um, I want to ask you something else because you are a car company and at some point we hope we'll get the other side of this. Um, You've suggested that perhaps car makers and the White House needs to consider what we saw during the financial crisis, which was a cash for clunker scheme to try and regalvanize demand for cars when we come the other side of this. Have you spoken to the White House about this yet? And if not, when will you?
6: No, uh, really, Julia, we're just focused on uh, the race and the race is focused on saving uh, lives. That is the most important uh, thing uh, that is driving every action we're taking. Uh, certainly uh, the team is preparing uh, for when uh, operations restart and uh, hopefully we get back to a very vibrant uh, uh, you know, rebound uh, with the economy and others. But the most immediate task that we have to focus on is helping uh, both the patients that are afflicted with this uh, really deadly virus, and uh, of equal importance, making sure we're doing everything that we can to help our first responders and these incredibly brave men and women the real heroes that are fighting this fight uh, on the front lines trying to save people's lives
0: jim couldn't agree more thank you so much for joining us this morning thank you to your team for uh, your efforts and trying to save lives great to have you with us
6: thanks so much uh you no, know this is you. part of Ford's dna and and we uh we just want to make sure we're here to help in any way we can
0: Thank you. Stay in touch, please, and stay safe. Thank you. We're back after this. You're with First Move. Welcome back to first move, where US stock markets are open for trading for the final time this week. And we do see a lower start to this session. Before the bow, we found out that the US posted its first month of job losses since October of 2010. It's a somber reminder of the toll that the global health crisis is taking on workers and on the economies around the world. We were bracing for a bad number, and more up-to-date numbers have come in far worse. Of course, this doesn't capture the second two weeks of March when we saw the shutdown orders really taking hold. So that's what you have to bear in mind. It was worse than we were expecting. We're losing around half a percent, as you can see, for U.S. majors. What about the oil markets this morning, too? Well, both Brent and U.S. crude are extending their historic gains from Thursday on hopes for an OPEC Plus production cut, OPEC is holding an emergency meeting with Russia and some of the other oil producers on Monday. Remember, uh, executives of the oil industry are meeting at the White House, of course, today too. Now, other business headlines. Tesla is reporting better than expected first quarter delivery numbers in this extremely challenging environment for all the automakers. The electronic car maker delivered more than 88,000 vehicles, still some 20% below last quarter's record levels. Shares of Tesla surging in early trading today. Wow, that's a bright spot. Okay, Dow one of the world's largest chemical producers is expanding its hand sanitizer production to help fight the global coronavirus crisis. The company's plant in Germany was already making hand sanitizers and now four additional plants around the world are joining in with the effort. The company says most of its sanitizers will be donated to health systems and government agencies. Dow CEO Jim Fittling joins us now. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain the moment where you realized as one of the top three chemical companies in the world you had the inputs that are needed to help and decided to take action good,
7: good morning julia it's nice to be with you um our team in stade germany realized that uh, the german government needed some help and and we supply a lot of materials that go into many products like disinfectants uh, antiseptics hand sanitizers cleaning products And so they swung into action and basically repurposed a line to make hand sanitizers in Germany. And based on their work, we expanded that to four more locations around the world. And so we'll be making 200 metric tons a month of hand sanitizer, mostly uh, for hospitals and for donations to governments who are, are going to need them.
0: It's incredible because it was in the initial stages of this, There was an immediate shortage i think all around the world as people bought this and and then were hoarding it and we were concerned about um the healthcare sector and the frontline workers in particular here jim is the company bearing the cost of this you just mentioned the word donate
7: most of the material that we'll be making will be donated um we are supplying obviously other producers who are making materials and, and many of them have ramped up production as well and others in the chemical industry are stepping up to help out. So there's a there's a big move to try to mitigate that shortage and, and we'll be at this for as long as there's a need. I, I think this is going to obviously last a lot longer than the month of April. I think we'll be doing this for a while.
0: How are you coordinating getting the supplies of sanitizer to the frontline workers and the healthcare systems? Is is anyone within the governments organizing this or are you again just doing this yourselves and Dealing with them directly?
7: Our government affairs team and our public affairs teams around the world are plugged in to their local, state, and uh, federal counterparts. And so they're working very closely to find out where the need is the greatest and where we can get those materials the quickest. We obviously have to look after our own sites as well. So we want to be able to continue to operate our sites because we are critical to many industries that are going to continue to run through this pandemic. And then we have to look at also suppliers and customers and communities to make sure that they're able to help us uh, to continue to be safe.
0: You raised two very important points there for me. One, how are you protecting your own workers? And you're a giant company, you have operations in, in China as well. What did you learn from that experience that applies everywhere else? And what are you seeing there now specifically?
7: Well, in the China phase and, and in our previous experience with SARS, and, and I was in Asia during that time, uh, working, sheltering in place, working from home became the first line of defense. And so we quickly went to a work from home status. Uh, it happened to, to occur during the Chinese New Year. So uh, some people were, were not at the office sites anyway. But we ran the plants that we could run and, and we had everybody else work from home. And that containment phase lasted about two months. And I think we're in that phase right now in, in the Europe and in the United States where we've been working from home at Dow for the last three weeks. Uh, anybody that can works from home and critical workers who we need on the front line uh, to keep the plants running and to ship our products are reporting into the sites they they're checked um we we don't allow visitors on sites so we're being pretty strict about that we're doing temperature checking as people come into the sites to make sure nobody has a case and if somebody does have a case you know obviously they go home and quarantine and get treatment and and we would continue to pay them if they're test positive for COVID 19.
0: which is good news for those workers in particular jim how confident are you that after two months in China, the reopening that we're seeing, the information that we're getting, your ability to protect your workers is enough?
7: Well, I look at the order book and I, I looked at March and, and look at April again, and I would say we're, we're at about 80 percent of where we were pre-COVID uh, with China. So if I compare the current order book to last year, we're about 80 percent levels. And it's gradually opening back up. Uh, some industries, obviously, quicker than others. I would say the automotive industry has been one of the slower ones to come back. And and that is what I think we're going to see here, too, is that it, you just don't start and stop these plants uh, quickly. And you want to make sure that it's safe for everybody to come back. Uh, the information we get uh, in China is is relatively good. I'm, I'm not so much focused on the number of cases and, and the mortality rates, but but more what's happening in the local community. Uh, how many cases do we have? Uh, how many people need to be treated? And in fact, we managed through the Asian situation so far without having any cases.
0: Very quickly, Jim, do you think, given the reaction that we've seen in, in Europe and in the United States, we'll be able to restart in, in two months? Or do you think it's going to take these nations longer to restart?
7: We'll take it a step at a time. You know, my, our planning right now is that we will be work from home and essential workers at the sites for the months of uh, April and May. And I think that's, um, that's good planning. Um, I, obviously, we're all hopeful that things develop positively. We get good treatments and we see the caseloads peak and start to decline. We're starting to see uh, Italy flatten a little bit right now. And so hopefully we'll see that start to decline, but we're not going to uh, jump too soon here. We're gonna need to make sure that it's safe for everybody to go back and we'll probably be working in a phased transition. So I'd say after containment, we'll be in a return to work phase where we phase people back in and probably the back half of the year, kind of a return to normal phase.
0: Yeah, it's going to take some time. Jim, thank you for everything that you're doing there. The Dow CEO. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon and stay safe. We're going to take a break. Coming up on First Move, what's the key to the lockdown in the global economy? Well, a new report says we're just weeks away from a solution and it's not a vaccine. We'll speak to the report's author to get the insight. Welcome back to first move here's a current question being asked i think on a daily basis when will life go back to normal a vaccine would be a surefire solution but that could be many months if not longer away now a report by city suggests there might be another solution it involves testing for antibodies on big scale. Catherine Mann is Goa Chief Economist at City, She joins us now via Skype. Catherine, great to have you on the show with us. Talk to me about your mass testing for antibody solution. It, it At its heart is something called serology, which might be new to some of our viewers. Mm-hmm. Well,
8: let's uh, make clear that this was uh, a joint report by a right. doctor who is the head of our Pharmaceuticals Baum uh, out of our London, uh, London office, and uh, the economics of it, which is the uh, what I do, the global chief economist. So I'm not going to pretend to be a to to be a, a a doctor or a medical doctor, or to understand all of the details with regard to antibodies. But I think what the what the point is uh, is that uh, mass testing of people would be able to identify if somebody has already had the virus. That's the first step. Uh, The mass testing is the first step. Have they had the virus? Uh, Determine that. And then to evaluate uh, if they've had the virus, uh, the antibodies, does it identify them as being immune and not contagious. And if those steps are fulfilled by this uh, new seriology uh, uh, re- uh, strategy, then, uh, then we could talk about having workers go back to work uh, and to uh, restart the economy, at least the working part of the economy, uh, by identifying people who are um, have had the disease, have the antibodies, are immune, and not contagious. Uh, those are a number of challenges. And I think there are also economic challenges, uh, having to, to do with it's one thing to get an, a country back to work, like in a factory or in a, or in a warehouse. It's another thing to get people back, what we call is to get back to play. In other words, restaurants, entertainment, hospitality, uh, tourism, these sorts of things. Uh, that's going to be harder to do even under this antibody strategy. Uh, And for a advanced economy that has a very large services sector, um, it's a it's still a remaining question about getting back to play.
0: Yes. Play requires confidence. And the heart of that is being on top of the health crisis here. I appreciate your point about you're on the economic side rather than the scientific. But for me, the biggest assumption here, and I'm not sure whether the the science uh, is there yet is whether even if you have the antibodies in your system i.e you may have had this coronavirus but right. you didn't even know it whether you're in fact immune mm-hmm. and still can't perhaps either catch it again or pass on the virus to someone else are we sure about right. that yet
8: so well, I, I, the, the science is moving very quickly towards understanding those uh, key elements that, you know, antibodies, yes. Uh, immunity, yes, uh, not contagious, yes. So these are these are the science uh, elements and there are a number of different uh, uh, places that are pursuing the strategy in order to get clarity on that because it is it is crucial uh, from a science standpoint. But again, I think it's really important also to think about the economics of this in that first you would have to, in some sense, one reason why we're having all of these lockdowns now is because we're concerned about overwhelming the health system with everyone getting it. Um, And so unfortunately, in order to get the antibodies, you have to get the disease, so we haven't solved that particular problem about the concern about overwhelming the healthcare system and you know the associated uh, greater mortality rate that is uh, a consequence of overwhelming the health uh, system. That's the front end of the si- of, uh, even if we got the science right. The front end, and as I say, the back end, which is getting people back to work and play. Uh, these are um, really key challenges because uh, you know teams are very important in the work workplace, everybody, a member of the team would have to have had these uh, antibodies in order to be part of the team that goes back to work. Or maybe you have to hire new people that that do have the characteristics for both the job as well as the characteristics of their health. Uh, that's for the work part. And then, as I say, for the play part, restaurants, uh, it's not just the workers in the restaurants, but are you going to have like a, a passport at the door uh, in order to uh, only allow people in who, who've got the coronavirus passport? Um, you know, from the standpoint of, of uh, getting back to play, which is a key ingredient of getting back to normalcy, the, uh, the, co- the conduct of the economy, uh, getting back to growth rates, very important ingredients in advanced economies, is, is this social interaction, which, which ultimately is all about groups. Uh, so everybody in the group would have to have the passport. So I think there's some challenges in implementation and those challenges and implementations have implications for how, how long it might take for us to get back to normalcy. Um, so if we could do that though, if we can get back to normalcy, the difference in potential cost to the global economy, you know, individual economies within that, uh, individual companies, even more granular and then families, huge, huge difference between 7% of global GDP and 1% of global GDP. These are the kinds of numbers that getting this done uh, delivers for us.
0: I just want to pull out some of the points that caught my eye. You believe that healthcare providers could supply 60% of the working population with an antibody test. This is in the United States by the end of Mm -hmm. April, 95% by the end of May and obviously we don't know at this stage what kind of proportion of the population may indeed have this immunity. But Catherine, I want to flip it on its head exactly to your point there. If we don't do this, if we don't have some kind of phased getting people back to work because they're immune, what are we looking at in terms of time to get back to play, to use your term, full play? Do we do it by the end of this year?
8: The uh, One of the challenges here is, is that the virus didn't come into every country at the same time. Um, and, you know, if it had, then we could talk about an evolution of the virus and the lockdowns and the return to normalcy, and it would all be on the same calendar schedule. The problem is, of course, it's it's uh, gone around the world, and so we talk about countries being a month behind or two weeks behind in terms of the evolution of the virus. Uh, in the United States, we talk about the coasts versus the interior, uh, even uh, geographical differences in terms of its pace of of um, uh, going getting worse and and uh, and infecting the population. So that means that not only do we have to consider getting back to play in the first country, which is China, uh, the first uh, uh, location where the virus appeared. And, and we can say that China, we can look at data uh, that tell us that China is about 90% back to work. I think uh, your previous speaker was talking about his his own uh, order book and so forth. So 90% back to work, but only about 60% back to play. And, and we are now, you know, January, February, March, uh, Yes. And so uh, that is for China. They're uh, substantially ahead of other uh, economies. So your question is, will we be back to normalcy by the end of the year? Um, we will be back. Uh, we are hoping that we will be back to some normalcy. Um, but I think it will take uh, it will
0: take time. Um, if plan. we if we peak in the United States, Catherine, I have to interrupt in. you there yes. because we're out of time. But we will get you back. Brilliant to get okay. your insight and Getting back in play, my key takeaway, the challenge of yeah. that. Catherine Mann of Citigroup right. there. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you After much. the break, we're putting governments and major institutions under the spotlight and asking, time to act. Are they doing enough? Stay with us. To First Move, a new segment, Time to Act. Are institutions, governments doing enough? Richard Quest and John Defteris joins me now. Guys, this is going to be a new segment that we're going to do every week on First Move. John, kick us off. What do we need to see? What more?
3: Well, I think, Julia, the biggest challenge we have right now, is populism ruling the day here and not global collaboration. So what do I mean by that is uh, if you go back to recent history, the global financial crisis of 2008 to 2010, the G20 was the vehicle and we actually unleashed collaboration between the U.S., China, the European Union to solve the problem. It was a dormant institution. It was brought back to life. Uh, They talk a very solid game right now about the $5 trillion that are on the table here by the G20. But that money is not being spent internationally. That's a disappointment. Even during the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, you knew everything was gonna be okay. We had European countries coming together. The United States was extremely engaged. They funneled money into Eastern Europe very quickly. This is a global challenge. It needs a global response, not those cocooning and looking after
2: their own at this stage.
0: It's a global crisis. We need global action, Richard.
2: I agree with John and I don't agree with him. Uh, He he talks a good game in terms of what needs and should happen, but the political realities of life mean that at the moment, national governments are more concerned with ensuring their own house doesn't collapse first. And there is a certain logic to this, by the way. If a major OECD country were to fail in a substantial way, then the rest of the world, the developing world, would suffer much greater in the longer run. So I understand the logic that John's putting forward. But at the moment, the priority for governments has to be the restoration and the protection of their own people and economies and at the same time, and this is the impossible this is the three card trick Julia, that you can't do is at the same time ensure the developing world is maintained and protected
0: It's such a great point Everyone knows how to behave, they just don't know how to behave and get re-elected We need broader action and people understanding that Every life matters. No lives matter more than others. We are going to talk in more detail next week about this. This was just an introduction. But this is going to be the segment Time to Act. Gentlemen, we're going to push them to do more. Thank you so much. We are just about wrapping up the show. But what I'm leaving you with here is the New York Fire Department saying thank you to medical workers outside Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. Heroes, not just in New York, not just in states around America, but in countries all around the world. Be kind to yourselves and each other. We'll see you here on First Move on Monday. Stay well.